Hello, my name is Cory, and welcome to episode 3.5 of the Mongol Empire podcast. This is the fifth instalment of the Rise of Temujin, and by the end of the episode we should finally be on firm ground date-wise. Last time out, we saw Temujin split from Andajamuga and be declared Khan of the Mongol people by the senior members of the Borjigin family. But importantly, he was not yet Chinggis Khan, and by the end of this episode, he still won't be Chinggis Khan. Now, I found that one of the benefits of not writing this podcast too far in advance of the research is that I get to think a bit more about the topics at hand, and often get to read material that can change my take on a subject. For example, the idea I pushed in episode 3.4 about Temujin offering positions of importance within his camp to men of no reputation was probably not as radical as I may have made it sound. It seems likely that the roles he handed out were probably mirrored within the clans that had joined him. We shall see in this episode that there was very little to differentiate Temujin's tribe from Jamuga's, say. One of the dangers of studying a subject as fantastically unlikely as the conquest of the majority of the Eurasian landmass is that we see genius behind every action and decision. And this problem is amplified because of the sources we have. The majority are written by people who relied on the ruling family for their position and wealth, so they are typically full of praise. Additionally, we have very few sources that inform us about pre-Chingasid tribal customs, so we have to read between the lines. There is no doubt that Temujin brought a new form of government to the tribes, but it just wasn't now. So he was now Khan of the Mongol people. And the first thing he did was to send his arrows to Togril and Jamuga to inform them of his elevation. If you remember, Temujin's arrows were men who played a dual role of military commander and diplomat. The four he had chosen for this position were named Taghai, Sukagai, Chakur Khan, and Arkai Kassar, not to be mistaken for his brother, Kassar. They returned from the Karayad Khan with a message of congratulations. Togril said, quote, you're correct to make my son Temujin your Khan. How could the Mongol survive without a ruler? Never go back on your decision. End quote. And Jamuga, on the other hand, barely gave notice to Temujin's new position. Instead, he aimed his response at family members Ultan and Kuchar. Quote, you two, why have you done this to us? Why have you come between Ander Temujin and myself? It's as if you came at us with a knife, slashing our legs, stabbing our sides to keep us apart. Why didn't you elect Ander Temujin Khan when we were still together? What thoughts are behind this move to elect him now? Ultan and Kuchar, don't forget these promises you've made. See to it, my Ander's mind is at rest, and serve him well. End quote. Whilst this is clearly a thinly veiled attack on Temujin, Jamuga may have had a point. Ultan and Kuchar probably did elect Temujin Khan with one eye on improving their own power and wealth. Ultimately though, Jamuga's response provides both himself and Temujin with a justification for breaking the Ander Pledge, enabling them to operate independently and against each other. If the events of the early part of the secret history take place in any kind of chronological order, then hostilities between the two men broke out almost immediately. 
The flashpoint came when a kinsman of Jamuga named Taichar either decided or was instructed to steal the horses from the camp of a kinsman of Temujin. He managed to steal the entire herd and drove them back to his own camp. Of course, everyone knew that he was Jamuga's man. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that Temujin and Jamuga were sharing a camp. So this meant that any revenge would probably provoke a war between the two. In the end, one of Temujin's followers stepped forward to get the horses back. He rode to Taichar's camp, successfully infiltrated it, spotted Taichar, shot him in the back, and took all of the horses. As expected, Jamuga mobilised the Jadaran and their allies, which included the Taichigud, and marched on Temujin. Camped at Dalan Baljut, which was an area of marshy land, Temujin was alerted to Jamuga's movements by two men who found a back route into the region. He then organised the 13 camps in his service into a defensive formation and waited. This interlude gives us a good opportunity to investigate the composition of Temujin's tribe. According to Rashid al-Din, these 13 camps, or Korean, were divided into units of 10,000, hundreds, tens, and put about 30,000 men at Temujin's disposal. If we believe these figures, then he had a similar size to Jamuga, who the secret history tells us also had 30,000 men. As always, it's worth treating most numbers we encounter with a good dose of scepticism. Much like other tribes in this period, Temujin's power base was his family, and the Borjigins had flocked to Tamujin's banner en masse. There were the four who had elected him as Khan, Ultan, Sashabeki, Taichu, and Kuchar. There was also the son of Yesugai's older brother, Mongadu, and a descendant of a brother of Kabul Khan. They all either had their own camp, or were with other family members. To really emphasise how dispersed the Mongol people had become after the defeat of 1162, the descendant of the brother of Kabul Khan had joined Temujin from the Korea tribe. Beyond the extended family, two camps belonged to Hogalun and Temujin, both contained relatives, followers and servants, but Temujin's also included his liegemen, personal guard and his own family, which would include Bort, and probably all four of his sons, Joki, Chagadai, Ogadai and Tolui, his camp would also have included any other wives or concubines and their children. We will come back to look at Temujin's family in greater detail at some point in the future. The final camps belonged to clans who were not connected to Temujin by blood, but had pledged allegiance to him. There's no real need to go into detail about them, as Rashid al-Din doesn't really write much about them anyway, and the important clans will get mentioned as the narrative develops. So what does this tell us about Temujin's tribe? Well, it's clear that his strength comes from the senior members of the Borjigin family, which really reinforces the idea that the positions given to men such as Bogochu were at this stage standard camp roles, rather than the tribe-spanning positions they grew into. It also means that Temujin's position at the head of the Mongol people was subject to the whims of these same family members. His time with the Jadaran had shown that he could talk the talk, but now he would need to show that he could walk the walk. It was time to lead his men into battle. Temujin positioned his 13 camps into defensive circular formations, with carts used as makeshift fortifications. Each camp leader was positioned in the centre of his camp so he could view the progress of the battle. Against this, and the natural defensiveness of the marsh, Jamuga was forced to bring the Jadaran. And that's all the detail we have about the battle. 
Jamuga forced Temujin to retreat down the Jirin Pass and managed to capture the Chinos clan. But rather than trying to push the advantage, Jamuga removed his forces from Dalan Baljut and returned to his camp. There, he ordered 70 cauldrons to be brought up and he boiled the leaders of the Chinos clan alive. For the coup de grace, he cut off the head of the Chinos chief and tied it to the tail of his horse. Jamuga's victory appears to have been almost total. Temujin retreated so far that he actually disappears from all sources for about a decade, returning to history at the end of 1195. And this raises many questions. Where did he go? What was he doing? What happened on the step between the mid-1180s and 1195? Let's start by addressing the comings and goings of the step first. It seems that Temujin's defeat may have had much wider reaching implications than just forcing him to retreat. Turning once more to Paul Rachnevsky, he suggests that Jamuga's victory may have undermined Togrul's strength as leader of the Koreid. If you've listened to the Koreid episode, then you'll remember that Togrul had consolidated his position by murdering his brothers and chasing off other family members. This meant that whilst he was one of the strongest leaders on the steppe, he was not well liked, and there were many people waiting to take advantage of any signs of weakness. Rashid al-Din tells us that his brother Urkakara obtained support from the Naiman and together they defeated Togril, driving him and another brother, Jakagambu, into exile. The deposed Khan fled southwest to the Karakatai, while Jakagambu fled to the Jin. Togril spent a year with the Karakatai, but was forced to move again after instigating a rebellion against the Gurkhan. This time he went east, into lands held by the Uyghur and Sisir, where he continued to plunder. Beyond this year spent with the Karakatai, there is no real time frame for Togril's absence. We know that he returned to Mongolia in 1196, once Temujin had regained his strength. But there is nothing to indicate whether his absence was for two years or ten. What Togril's experiences do highlight is how open the frontier zone between the steppe and the cities was during peacetime. Nomads were able to move into land held by other nations to obtain support, find employment, or recover from defeat. The frontier with northern China was particularly tempting to the nomads. Border markets presented the opportunity to trade for luxurious Chinese goods, raid, and obtain captives, which could then be used later as leverage for obtaining even more luxurious goods. The fluidity of the frontier zone is probably what Temujin took advantage of after his defeat. He could retreat to the relative safety of the zone, lick his wounds, regain strength, and make connections with the tribes who called it home. There is the merest hint that he may have also got involved with the Jin. The Song diplomat Xiao Hong wrote in the Mengda Beilu that Temujin spent 10 years as a slave of the Jurchen. Now, there is a lot of disagreement over the validity of the source, with most scholars regarding it as a piece of Chinese propaganda, and the majority of biographies follow the structure of the secret history, ignoring these years entirely. Of course, I have no ability to read most of this source, so I'm not in the best position to offer support either way. But if we consider the events leading up to 1196, it could provide us with the source of Temujin's restoration. If we consider that the term slave doesn't necessarily mean a slave in the manacled palm frond waving sense, and instead refers to vassalage or employment, then this changes the sentiment of the Mengda Beilu. 
instead of being thrust back into poverty, did Temujin regain his strength by working for a far more powerful and controversial overlord? It would certainly explain why, in 1196, the secret history states that the Jurchen turned to Temujin for support against the Tartar. So working with this probably dodgy hypothesis, here is my reconstruction of events leading up to the defeat of the Tartars in 1196. Whilst the Jin typically promoted inter-tribal warfare to maintain their influence over the steppe, they sometimes sent their own armies to carry out punitive raids. In the autumn of 1195, Jin commander Wan Yen Xiang led his troops and their Tartar allies in campaign against the Ungarad tribe. This was successful. However, a disagreement rose over the division of the spoils, which led to the Tartar chief rebelling against the Jurchen. Wan Yen Xiang launched a surprise attack against the rebels and secured a victory, but at the cost of severely weakening his own army. Perhaps in response to the disloyalty and general unreliability of the Tartar tribe, Wan Yen Xiang may have looked around to find other potential nomad allies, particularly looking at groups who lived around the frontier zone, and perhaps had established a relationship with the Jin. One of the men in this region had a legitimate claim over the most powerful tribe in central Mongolia, and also maintained a strong following. It seems likely that Jaka Gambu was well known to the commanders of the Jin frontier, as he appears to have spent his entire exile from the Koreid tribe in the region. An alliance with the Koreid would have been a no-brainer for the Jin, as it would have given them the strength to counter the Tartar threat. But was the leadership of the Koreid something that Jaka Gambu would have wanted? This is where Agent Temujin comes in. If he had been working for the Jin for the best part of a decade, it seems probable that the relationship between Jaka Gambu and Temujin would have been known. I should note here that this relationship is another grey area, not covered in any detail by the sources, but it seems that they were close, perhaps even Ander, and the two were brought even closer with the marriage of a number of family members. Continuing with my hypothesis, Temujin, a man of great ability but with limited power, was then tasked by the Jin to bring Jakogambu and his part of the Koreid into an alliance, with the longer term goal of reuniting the entire Koreid tribe under his banner. There was just one problem with this plan. Out of all of Togaril's brothers, Jakogambu is one of the few that seems to have stayed loyal to him. So knowing that the deposed Khan was still alive, I would argue that he would have been reluctant to take the position. This is where Rashid al-Din's note comes in. He states that in 1195, Temujin resorted to violence to reunite Jakogambu with his brother Togril Khan. In my scenario, the argument has nothing to do with Togril, but was Temujin spying an opportunity to gain power and influence back on a step, and Jakogambu resisting it? What is certain is that in 1196, Temujin took the opportunity to destroy the group of Tartars defeated by Wanyan Xiang. Rashid al-Din reports that the Tartars did not have the strength to offer resistance, and that the previous defeat had forced them to take their women, children, flocks and herds, and move camp. As a result, the fight was extremely one-sided. Temujin advanced quickly, and the opportunistic nature of the attack meant that the Tartar were unprepared for it. A large number of tribespeople were killed, including the leader, and Temujin's soldiers obtained a lot of plunder. As a reward for this attack, 
Wan Yin Xiang gave Temujin the title Chaud Kuri, which means something along the lines of pacifier. And there was also a promise to inform the emperor of his actions, with a suggestion that a greater title might be available. But this was likely a carrot and stick situation. Wan Yin Xiang was dangling the prospect of further rewards to ensure that Temujin continued to work for the Jin. The reality was that the Jurchen had no reason to grant him any grander titles. He may have been a useful tool for policing the frontier zone, but Temujin was still small potatoes in the pantheon of tribal leaders. If the Jin were seriously looking to replace their alliance with the Tartar for one with the Kereid, they needed someone with a bigger reputation, hence going after Jakagambu. Fortunately for everyone, the leader with the biggest reputation and ego was about to re-enter the steppe. After unsuccessfully trying to provoke a rebellion in the Karakatai and plundering his way back east, Togril found himself reduced to extreme poverty, living off the milk of some stolen sheep. Possibly after hearing about Temujin's success and the new title he had obtained, he went to the son of his former Ander and begged for help. Togril suddenly found himself as the most popular person in the frontier zone. Everyone's prayers were answered. Jakagambu could refuse to be made Khan, the Jin had their puppet, and Temujin had an opportunity to play puppet master. Togril was quickly invested with the royal title of Ong or Wang, meaning king or prince, and found himself elevated back to the position of Khan, ego soothed and reputation restored. So that's my theory on how the period played out. The reality is that the sources give us very sparse details. For some unknown reason, Temujin attacked Jakagambu in 1195. Having rescued Togril from poverty by furnishing him with men and herds, Temujin then reunites him with his brother, and he suggests a combined attack on the Tartar, resulting in absolute victory and both men receiving their titles from Wanyan Xiang. I'll leave you to decide how plausible my version is but it would explain why there is a gap in the retelling of Temujin's history, as it really wouldn't be good to show Chinggis Khan as a mere servant of the reviled Chinese. However the events played out, Temujin bursts back into the sources in 1196, but as always, things were not easy for the Mongol Khan. The battle against the Tartars may have restored some of his power, but at the cost of his authority over the wider Borjigin family. Prior to the attack, the secret history reports that two clans, the Mangud and the Urugud, renounced their allegiance to Jamuga and joined Temujin, who organised a feast to celebrate the occasion. In a feast, it was traditional to serve the most important members of the family first. Typically, this meant the leader of the tribal clan and senior members of the family. Clan hierarchy was also organised by seniority, and this would determine at what point you could expect to get service, and who you should expect to get served before. Temujin seems to have followed some aspects of this tradition. The first people to be honoured at the feast after himself were his mother Hogalan, his brother Kassar, and then Sasha Becky, and other important family members. After this, it seems that the cooks went around providing food and drinks to all and sundry. The problem with doing this was that the camp included some very senior members of the Borjigin family who expected protocol to be upheld. So it's time to get your family trees out again. If you don't have a family tree, go to mongolempirepodcast.com and pick yourself up a copy. The Jerkin clan contained some of the most senior members of the Borjigin family. The founder of the clan was Sorkatu Jerki, 
a cousin of Temujin's father, Yesugai. Sokutu Jerki had died at some point in the unknown past, leaving at least three widows with the leadership of the clan shared by his sons, Sashabeki and Teichu. As we've seen, Sashabeki was honoured at the feast, just after the important figures of Temujin's own family. As the feast developed, Sokutu Jerki's widows were not served in their expected order of precedence. The two who were expecting to be served first struck down the cook, who then started to cry the behaviour of the Jerkin clan, who apparently held themselves aloof from the Kiat branch of the Borjigin, to which Temujin and his family belonged to. During this same feast, Belgatai caught a man trying to steal a bridle from one of his horses. A kinsman of the thief, called Buri the Athlete, started to wrestle Belgatai. With the kumis flowing, the fight escalated and a sword was introduced. When a dust settled, Belgatai had suffered an embarrassing defeat, and received a torn coat and gashed shoulder for his efforts. With his authority over the jerkin under threat, Temujin got involved. Quote, Temujin Khan, resting in the shade of a tree on the feasting grounds, saw Belgutai walk away from his post with a wound on his bare shoulder. Temujin ran to him, saying, How did this happen? Who did this to you? Belgutai answered, Don't start a fight among the people for me. These younger brothers have just joined their elder brothers and hardly had time to get to know us. Don't be too quick to strike back at them. End quote. But Temujin was drunk and incensed. He probably also had a lot of pent-up rage from years of mistreatment by various family groups. So instead of finding a peaceful resolution to the problem, Temujin gathered a group of followers, broke branches off trees, and proceeded to beat any members of the Jerkin clan who got in his way. He took two of the widows captive before the Jerkin offered to make peace. A messenger arrived at the camp to inform Temujin that the rebel Tatar group were heading towards them. And as we've already discussed, Temujin gathered his troops and invited the Jerkin to join them in the assault. They refused, and whilst the main body of Temujin's army was away attacking the Tatar, the Jerkin raided his camp. Ten of Temujin's followers were killed, and another fifty were stripped of their clothes and horses. Unsurprisingly, any thoughts he may have had of reconciliation went straight out the window. The Jerkin were labelled as enemies, and Temujin immediately attacked them. The Jerkin were not as strong as they had perhaps thought, and were routed, with Temujin's Mongols taking as much plunder as they could. Sashabeki and Teichu tried to escape Temujin's wrath, but were captured and brought to their Khan, who made them recount their oath. Quote, Chinggis spoke to them, saying, What did you promise me long ago? And Sashabeki and Teichu answered him, We have not kept our promise. Make us honour our oath to you. Remembering the oath that they had sworn when they had elected him Khan, they stretched out their necks to him, and Chinggis made them honour their oath executing them on the spot where they stood. End quote. Jerkin captives were then distributed among Temujin's followers, and the rest of the clan was absorbed into his tribe. The Jerkin name was erased from the steppe, and Temujin had control over the most senior branch of the Borjigin family. To affirm his power, he ordered a rematch between Belgutai and Buri the athlete. The secret history states that Buri could lift Belgutai with one hand, and sweep his legs out with the other. But fearing to anger the Khan, Buri allowed himself to be thrown. Unable or unwilling to pin his opponent, Belgatai took hold of Buri's shoulders. At a sign from Temujin, 
Belgatai put his knee into Bury's back, pulled on his shoulders and snapped his spine. It was a not-so-subtle sign that the Jerkin clan had a new master. The subjugation of the Jerkin also marks a new period in Temujin's career. Gone were the days when he needed to rely on his extended family to maintain his position as Khan. If my analysis of the events of 1196 holds any truth, then he was ruler of a large part of the Korea tribe in all but name. And besides, relying on family had only ever brought him trouble. From now on, the Borgigans were fair game. And this is where we shall finish for today. Temujin is back in Mongolia and stronger than ever. Togril has been restored to the head of the Korea tribe and elevated to royalty by the Jin, and the pair are once more allies. But we are still a decade out from Temujin being crowned Chinggis Khan, and a lot can happen in that time. As always, check out mongolempirepodcast.com to find a list of the sources used in this and all the previous episodes, along with family trees and a map of the five main tribes on the Mongolian steppe. If you want to give me any feedback, correct any glaring errors, or just say hi, you can contact me by email, Cory, that's C-O-R-E-Y, at mongolempirepodcast.com, or I am on Twitter, at Mongol Empire Pod. Otherwise, until the next episode, take care of yourselves and thank you for listening.